0: Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. This week we are talking to David Peterson. David is the creator and artist for the comic Mouse Guard. If you're a fan of comics and not already familiar with Mouse Guard, do yourself a favor and get acquainted with this extraordinary world. David is a master storyteller, and the art is soulful and iconic. We start off discussing David's approach to world-building, and how to tackle the enormous task of creating an immersive experience for your viewers and readers without becoming overwhelmed and bogged down. Spoiler, it's a lot like any other piece of art. Start with the big shapes, and gradually add smaller details, only where you need them. We then talk a bit about how to produce, market, and distribute an intellectual property while keeping it safe from exploitation. We also delve into a good bit of the origins and development of the world of MouseCard. David is also the host of his own online convention, aptly called OnlineCon. The event is full of great interviews and amazing art. As of this recording, online is over, but there will be more in the future, and our discussion of the event is worth listening to, as are the recordings of the past events, which can be found on David's Twitch channel linked in the show notes. Thank you for listening. Please enjoy our talk with David Peterson. So excited, David. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this uh, for uh, quite some time. When we started uh, doing, if you'll uh, allow me a tiny bit of fanboying, when we, started,
1: of course. Um,
0: <laughs> when we started this podcast, you were one of the first names that went down on our list of hopefuls to uh, interview in the future. So, The fact that we've reached this uh, landmark is fantastic. I feel like we're doing something right. And so welcome. And thank you for giving us your time today.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yeah, let's uh, dive right into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself, David. Um, What's your background? And how did you get snagged by the art hook and reeled in for life? Um, Yeah, I I grew up in Flint, Michigan,
2: and uh, uh, my dad worked in the automotive industry. He was uh, kind of on the engineering side. Um, My mom was a a stay-at-home homemaker who had a nursing background. Um, Both were were fairly creative. Uh, My mom did a lot of of crafting-style artwork. She did needlepoint. Um, She made clothes. She um, she just did you know, other kind of decorative crafts with, uh, you know, hot milk glue and wreaths and, you know, household decorations and, and holiday decoration kind of stuff. And, uh, and my dad was a woodworker and uh, he did a little bit of metal sculpture. So creativity was encouraged. Um, my sisters were both in uh, theater and choir uh, so, yeah, it was a, it was a creative household, even though, you know, engineering background and automotive town was was the setting. Um, and yeah, getting hooked in art. I mean, every every kid draws. Right? You ask you ask any group of kindergartners, how many of you like to draw? Boom, all the hands go up and the higher you go up in grades. Every time you ask that question, the fewer hands actually stay up until you get to some point like in sixth or seventh grade where it's only the art nerds that are putting up their hands. Yeah, um, and I was just one of those kids who never put down my hand. Um, yeah, I, even though there was, a, there was a, a weird discouraging time towards my, um, probably the end of elementary school where I didn't think of myself as the art guy. I liked art, but I wasn't the art guy. And I think it's because of like weird kid identification thing. Like that's the smart kid. That's the athletic kid. You know, that's the, that's the kid who does karate. That's the, and whatever, right? Like that she's the roller skater. He plays hockey, whatever. And there already was the the art kid, the kid who was really good at drawing in my elementary class. And it wasn't me. So I was just more like the, the troublemaker, uh, not trouble, not serious trouble, but like, you know, Somewhere between class clown and and troublemaker, I was a Weasley twin. I was half of a of the Weasley twins. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, yeah, but art, yeah, I, I think it was then getting into to middle school, and I think around that time, also my parents were cool with. Um, uh, uh, paying for some extracurricular art classes that were serious. They actually had had done some of that when I was younger too, but I feel like in some ways those were more like babysitting style activities. Like, you know, it'd be great to get David interested in something after school once a week or twice a week, you know, and he likes art. So that's fine. But then middle school, I think I started going to the Flynn Institute of arts for some of their, um, educational workshops and classes and things. And uh, like, those were the kinds where they came with supply lists. You had to, you had to go get the stuff that you needed for that class. And my parents were totally cool with that. So um, I think that's when, when I got hooked, that's, that's when it became serious.
0: Did that formal education continue into like a proper art school or were you, have you been mostly self-guided since then?
2: Uh, I think it's actually a, a good mix of both. Um, I, I took art from, so, so in elementary school, I was, you know, one of those last generations where art and music were offered year round, um, as like part of class, <laughs> it was, it was normal. And then, um, from seventh through, uh, 12th grade where, you know, arts an elective, um, I had it almost the entire time. There was part of seventh grade that I didn't. But from eighth, eighth to twelfth, I had art as an elective every semester. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and some of that was more formal. And some of it was almost like, here's an hour of free time, because the teacher was so hands off. Like, here's an hour of free time to just do art, draw whatever you want. Uh, very little structure, very little education part of it. And I continued to take the classes at, at Flint Institute of Arts. And then I went to um, Mott Community College to start, which had a great arts program. There was actually a really cool program um, for juniors and seniors at the high in the, all the high schools in the county to come to the Flint Institute of Arts for, it was called the Welsh Young Fine Artist Program. But it was basically like, Hey, as high school seniors and, and juniors, if you want to take college-level classes as a sampler, that's what we're going to offer. And you had to, like, send in a portfolio to get accepted. I did that, and I ended up meeting a lot of the Mott Community College professors that way and liked it. We were in their facilities,
3: um, and I went,
2: okay, cool. So when I graduate, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to transfer or I'm going to enroll in Mott Community College. So I did uh, two years there. And then I transferred to a university. I wanted to get a degree because um, I knew that art wasn't necessarily gonna uh, pay the bills. Um, but I still got my degree in art. I got a, a bachelor's in fine arts in uh, printmaking. But I knew even just having, you know, he has a college degree. I can check that box on forms. I can, I can write that down on my on my CV. It meant that it was I I could go further than some other applicants just for having done it. Um, Yeah, and then formal. I I finished out at Eastern Michigan, Um, but Eastern was very uh, Eastern was was very fine art centric. At least when I when I was there, Uh, I don't want to besmirch their current reputation. I have no idea what they're like now, but um, at the time they were they were so fine art centric that they were the kind of of art department that looked down their nose at illustration. That was a craft. That was a, that was a lesser form of art. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't deal with that kind of thing. In fact, um, even if you were doing something that where you weren't actively working on a still life, if you drew representationally, I had professors coming down on me uh, for drawing representational or even realistically um, because they were like, we have a camera. We don't need, we don't need you to recreate the real world. Like put, put love on the page, put hate on the page, put, put emotion. You know, and I was like, eh. I
3: also want to be able to be competent at what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh,
0: sorry, that wasn't a cut. So I'm
3: sorry.
2: So I had to self t- yeah, I know you were, <laughs> you were, you were giving my professor some guff. Um, so what that meant was I had to do a lot of, relearning and self teaching uh in between semesters on just on my own, but also once i graduated i had to i had to teach myself how to be an illustrator because I left with a degree that I had zero illustration
3: experience
0: That's so bizarre that that mentality I don't want to go off on that tangent too much, but <laughs> that's just that's so weird it's so so i mean that's for another time i i'
3: i'll i'll
2: yeah i mean i mean the the, the really quick <laughs> The really quick positive. So there's, you know, obviously positive and negatives. I think we can all see the negatives. Um, the positive of it is, I think that
3: any life experience is going to inform you both as a person, but also as an artist. Um,
2: and those could be interpersonal issues. Those could be specific art things. Um, but I, it meant that I was exposed to. Um, types of art, styles of art, maybe even uh, materials that I wouldn't normally have. Um, I was pushed out of my comfort zone in, in lots of ways there. Um, it also meant that there was some things where it was like, it's kind of like doing client work sometimes. You, you are being told this is what you have to do. And it's not what I want to do or would normally do under any circumstances. But how can I do that but not betray myself as an artist. How can I do my best version of whatever that is? Um, and while, yes, I would have preferred having some of the other experience, there was something that came out of, of the um, doing, doing the type of artwork that I had zero interest in being, being forced to do that.
0: That's fair. That's fair. I, I, Always immediately jump right to the negative and get so frustrated. <laughs> it's like I forget. Okay, maybe there are some positives to that. So coming out of uh, school, you know, with a degree in fine arts, but no intent necessarily to um, go right right into a, a artistic profession, um, whatever that might be. Uh, what, what line of work did you go into if I may ask, and then how did you find your way into making art the life and career path?
3: Yeah. So I, I, I
2: wanted to make art the career path and the, and the financial stability. Um, I just was realistic to know that that wasn't going to happen, especially for someone who wanted to try to get a job doing, you know, some type of illustration. And I just left where I have zero experience illustrating and I don't even really have a portfolio of decent illustration work. Um, so in terms of just paying the bills, I, I just kind of kept up with the college style jobs. I, I, um, when college I worked at an ice cream store, I worked, uh, at, at a movie theater briefly. I worked at a, uh, Starbucks was kind of the longest haul. I was a barista at Starbucks. Um, and uh i remember it being a very sad day the first shift that i had to work at starbucks after my commencement ceremony from college and being like there i got my degree and i'm right back doing the same damn thing i was doing when i was a student (sighs) um and nothing against starbucks i I, there are days where i still miss being a barista but um i did that and then i went into uh I, I, there was a, a really cool architectural antique store in town, in Ypsilanti, Michigan, where Eastern is. And uh, I saw I was just browsing this this shop. It was a really cool place. They had all these you know salvaged mantles and and armoires and light fixtures and stained glass. And I was like, this is cool. And just to look around, and then I saw they had a sign up saying they were looking for some extra help. Um, so that was the kind of job where I could do it and still have time and creative energies, uh, when I wasn't at work to, uh, to try to build that portfolio and, and build my work. Um, I was not, I was not disciplined or driven or had any kind of a plan for how the art was going to become the path. I, I, it was almost this like, you know, I just have to wait. There's going to be this right moment. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll know it when I see it almost sort of like waiting for the entrance ramp. Uh, And it it was definitely a lazy path of, of not, I mean, it was lazy, but it was also just, I didn't know any better.
3: I didn't know any better. Um, But I'll say that with every one of those jobs, uh, I found
2: a way to do art for the job. Um, So when I was at Starbucks, you know, we had those chalk signs that go up next to the menu board that would advertise whatever the special was. And uh, depending on who was the shift supervisor, you know, they'd try to find somebody who had, like, nice cursive to write, like, Frappuccinos, only $3 or whatever. Um, And they'd try their best to, like, draw a cup with a straw or something. And I was like, well, I could do a really cool, like, how about I draw, like, a cat drinking a Frappuccino? (laughs) And they're like, what? So I did that uh, and I did it. I brought in my chalk pastels from school. Like I wasn't using just the chalk set that came with the sign. And so I did these like full on pastel drawings on a, on a sign. And then they were like, okay, so we want you to do the signs every whatever it was every month, every week. Um, And that got to the point where they were actually bringing me in on hours where I wasn't scheduled to work. Uh, Cause it took longer, it took a long enough time. They couldn't justify me being off uh, like out in the cafe drawing when the line was backed up, when I was supposed to be working. Um, and then same kind of thing for the antique store. Um, I started by redesigning a brochure and then I was like, well, the now the business cards are all out of date. Well, we should also do a postcard for an upcoming sale. Hey, the website really use, needs some work. It's a 15,000 square foot store. People don't know where they're going when they come in. We need more signage. We need signs advertising what we do. Hey, I noticed we keep saying this this line over and over and over again about our lighting or about our furniture or about our delivery policy. I should make graphics that explain all of that. and We can hang them up around the store. And so I just turned it into like this. I was hired as a salesman. I was a terrible salesman. But I ended up carving out this like uh, graphic design, web design um yeah advertising kind of gig out of it
0: yeah it's like early uh business education you know it's sort of like your early introduction to marketing and <laughs> and business creative marketing and business um so was it just most kind of what
2: of- I learned about I was gonna say most of what I learned about print files came from Having to get postcards printed and brochures printed and business cards printed and, and uh, all that kind of stuff that we were printing for, for the antique store and dealing with local printers there is how I learned everything about Photoshop files and PDFs and all that.
3: I didn't have any of that in school.
0: There you go. Real world experience. There's a lesson in that. Take notes, everybody. Was it odd? Was it kind of the semi-related odd jobs until mouse guard or was there yeah. oh wow really yeah. okay in fact uh,
2: i so i i wrote and drew the infer the entire first book of mouse guard fall um while i was still working the antique job i did it on nights and weekends um i had a one hour commute to that to that store and uh i mean when i started the job i was just down the block but then when julia and i got married we moved um and that's when uh, I started working on Mouse Guard. And yeah, I, I would uh, call, <laughs> this is in the days before smartphones, I would call our house knowing nobody was home because Julia was already at work um, or still at work if I was on my way home, I would call the house and I would leave myself messages because in those drives, I would be coming up with story ideas or dialogue snippets. And there just wasn't an easy way to record myself or to write anything down or dictate to a phone or something like that. So I just call and leave myself voicemail messages here at the house. And, uh, and then yeah, nights and weekends writing and drawing mouse guard. And uh, even when it, it, when it took off and it was kind of a success, there was a part of me that was like, okay, it's time to quit the day job. But Julia and I are both level-headed enough to realize this could be a fluke. This could be a flash in the pan. You have health benefits, you have, you know, stability. Let's, let's wait until we know this is real. And it was when the, the pre-order numbers for the hardcover, uh, the first collection came in that we went, oh, okay. It it would actually hinder me being able to pursue this if I don't quit the job
1: now
0: that is pretty awesome though. so
1: uh real quick, um with our audience, we try to like uh, give them information of like like before they start doing something, they should consider this, you know plan this out, know that this is how much money they're going to make and stuff like that. Did you have any uh planning like, before mouse Guard? or was what was it that dro- drove you to try this?
2: So I, I self-published the first issue of Mouse Guard, but I did that, my, my understanding of the numbers um, came out of, I, uh, there was a, an art history professor that I knew when I was still a student who was putting on a gallery show at the university. He was actually one of the people who wanted to get illustration and comic art uh, respected within that art department. And so he put on a gallery show of comic book art. And, uh, and, and he, he got a, a, an amazing collection of, like, uh, so gold age, golden age to modern age original art pages hung everything from giant Prince Valiant pages to, uh, you know, modern, modern DC stuff.
3: Uh,
2: it was an incredible show. But instead of having, like, a catalog of the works in the show, he wanted to print a comic for everyone to take home. So he contacted all the people that he knew from from the school who had been students or former students to to write and draw some kind of a short story and he'd put it together like an anthology and I worked with him on that and found out about print on demand which was just burgeoning at that time. It was it was a brand new thing. So I learned about the finances of how much it costs uh, through that experience, how much it would cost to self publish a print on demand comic. And it was, uh, and there was a website where you could also, you know, put in all your, your numbers. If I want this many pages, or if I want a color cover, they had some other options that could bump or lower your price. And uh, I knew that. And I knew how much a table at a convention costs um, because I had a friend, Jeremy Bastion, who uh, of course, pirate girl fame, who had been going to the local convention for a long time? He's the first one who said, "Hey, you should come to a you should come to the Motor City Comic Con. You should set up." And I was like, "Well, I don't have a comic at the time." I said, "Well, I don't have a comic," and he goes, "Well, I don't have a comic, and I've been setting up for the last four years." I was like, "Oh, okay." So I, he broke down like table fees and that kind of thing with me, um, and I just went in thinking, like, "Look, I was going to be paying to get into the convention as an attendee." That weekend anyways. If I spend this much more on a table. I have a place to sit. And if I go buy anything. I have a place to stash it. Plus I'm going to be putting out my work. And maybe people will commission me. And I can make some money back. So I did that once with no book. um, And then Mouse Guard was. That that convention ran twice a year. Um, So it was like six months later. That I had Mouse Guard there. So I knew. I already had one convention under my belt. To know the table fees. And kind of the. The return, uh, I knew how much print-on-demand self-published issues were going to cost. Um, and my goal was to, like, you know, I had several tiers of goals. Lowest-tier goal was make back everything so that I was I was at even. Because I was going to spend that weekend at the Motor City Comic Con anyways. Um, so if I didn't have to pay to get in, awesome. If I made enough profit to preemptively pay for issue two's printing bill we're already making issue
3: two so those were like I I had very manageable early goals there's some uh, awesome it's like uh, moments of
0: fortune that (laughs) like this idea of going to conventions without a without a book (laughs) doing comic conventions without having a published comic book but then that yeah. sort of serving as this launch pad to then when you did have a book okay well now I know everything about, a com- about conventions I don't have to learn well. all of that stuff <laughs> With the, okay within, well. within reason I know, I know enough to not be just trying to like learn everything on the fly while I'm also sure. trying to like be doing all of the, the things promoting this book and talking to people about it and all that stuff so that's kind of awesome
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I had a lot to learn, uh, about convention. You know, I basically knew how to fill out the paperwork to get a table, how much it costs and where the loading doors were. That's about all I really knew about conventions
0: enough to get started.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Um, and also these, this was back in 2004, 2005. Um, and the fee for a table at that time was you could, you could buy a half table, for $50 or a full table for a hundred. So the idea of like starting out, going to a convention with nothing other than hopes of maybe getting some commissions and, you know, throwing out a few original pieces and going, I don't know if you buy them. Cool. Very different price structure than, than where we are right now. So um, yeah, I've, I've been very lucky there. You're right. That there was some like good fortune, Magical moments happening, but it was also in an era where the finances worked that way.
1: I think that leads into uh, this question rather nicely. Uh, a little weird, a little long-winded, but let's go through it. All right. So imagine that you are Peter Davidson. You have the same skills and abilities of David Peterson, but he is somebody else. Uh, David is still working on Mouse Guard uh, and hosting online con, and you are—you can only watch. You're not part of that community. Uh, you have to start your career from scratch today. You don't know anybody in the commu- in the uh, in the industry, and you don't have your connections or anything like that. Uh, what do you do to start? Uh, do you start a new world building project, or uh, is there something else that seems like a more reasonable approach to having starting to start your career?
2: You yeah, I mean, I think I've, I I I mean this the the weirdness of this question is you're asking me to be with me without being me. Um, to, to, make it broad and vague for everybody, I would say, you know, the idea of like playing to your strengths, you, you, you play to some kind of thing that is your strength. Um, so for me in some ways that is like a world building thing. It's, it'd be some kind of storytelling thing that I'd, I'd definitely be building a world within it because that's who I am. And, uh, yeah, I would, I would just start something new. I think the things that I would do differently because of the age Uh, that we're living in, like how things are different is I would be trying to build up a community um, virtually. I would be trying to uh, reach out and make friends with people on Twitch who are in the industry. I'd be, um, and and that's not necessarily even like, uh, it's not like a a rung climbing kind of thing. It's, it's not like, Ooh, I need to be friends with, uh, you know, I need to be friends with the real David Peterson. Cause he can make or break my career. Not that, not that at all. Um, and any kind of artist that you feel a kinship with that you're liking the work of, or even just, even if it's not even about the work, just like, Hey, I like the work ethic, or I like the way that they run their, their stream on Twitch or, or whatever, or their website. I mean, it doesn't have to be a Twitch
3: thing. I think that's a, there's a great community thing there because you can have a, a live dialogue. Um, but, uh, yeah,
2: whether it's Instagram or whatever, I just, I would be focused on, I'd probably take a similar path. Just, it's a little different because of the, because the technology has changed, but, you know, I, I didn't like do research into what would be a good comic. I had some drawings of mouse guard stuff at that first convention of, of those concepts. People said, when does this book come out after getting the question a couple times, I went, I'll have the book for the next convention. But you know, I had all of five people show interest. So I would just put something out there. I'd I'd make a comic on my own or a whatever. um, If I wasn't me, you know, whatever it is, I'm interested. I would I would make that thing. I would make a finished product to the best of my ability for my skill level at that moment. I'd make a thing. I'd make it available. I'd start making friends in a community virtually, um, and just sharing my work. I think if you share good work and and you're a decent person and and you know not a slog to be around not someone who makes it feel like every interaction is transactional um yeah you're you're going to find some level of success because people are going to you're going to find a group of people who like your work and you're going to find a group of people who like you and then that Venn diagram you know, that, that middle spot is going to be potentially interested in supporting you financially, but also interested in, in spreading the gospel of you.
1: So what about, uh, the world building aspect? How much of that do you, uh, do just front load it versus making the product to, you know, survive?
2: I, I don't do as much world building, I think, as people think. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm dead set against over front loading, um, for two reasons. One, it can bog you down as a creator. I, I remember a, a, a good friend of mine, my my friend Jesse Glenn, who's also the co-host with me on my um, video podcast series, the Plot Masters Project. Uh, he and I grew up together, role playing and creating comic characters and 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 you know world building stuff um, together. And I remember there was a D and D campaign that he was planning for and he was just filling up a binder with history about that kingdom and this character you know and it went back generations of, of how many how many generations back the kingdom went and there well there was a war 500 years ago and these are this is the fallout and here's the map as it was before the war and here's how it was after and here's how it is currently and it's like are we ever going to get to play this game like when are we actually going to start the story because the story is what's happening when we play. Um, And it just got so overwhelming. He was kind of like, yeah, I don't even know. I don't even know where to start. This is too much. (laughs) And then if you're feeling that way as a creator, even if you're not feeling that way as a creator, even if you feel good because you've got it all straight in your head, you've had years to organize that, mentally organize that in your head of what this world is like. You have it all straightened out. But your readership doesn't. Your, your viewership doesn't whoever your fans are don't know anything about it and if you just dump something on them like here's all the history here's the map here's the here's the various maps here's the here are the, all the wars here's the timeline here's the chronology of 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 kings and queens and uh it's too much it's like having them read a history book and I know some people like reading history books, but for the most part, when somebody's wanting to watch something to be entertained, they want a story. They want characters they connect, connect to. So that stuff has to be revealed slowly over time. Um, story. I, the analogy I like to use for young creators about this is um, your story, when it's, when it's really going well, is running at freeway speeds. But your audience is just backing out of the driveway. You need to give them some surface streets and an entrance ramp to go with you to get up to speed. You cannot expect them to back out of their driveway and already be going 75 miles an hour. you got to give them some lead up. So you got to slowly build that world stuff. So if you have an idea of where things are going but don't have it all planned out, I think that's better. I'm a big fan of like planting story seeds even for yourself. You don't have necessarily have it all written down. You just stake out a few little bits, and the next time you need to make a new story or when you're going to do a new chapter, go. I could explain more of that. I did. I planted that thing a little while ago. I wonder what that. Oh, I wonder what that's even about. I should make something up for that. That'd be cool.
1: What you just said reminds me of the uh, opening of Skyrim, where they're in the wagon and they just give the big expo- exposition dump. Like, I'm from Isengard. My cousin, he's from Ravenhelt and uh, and people are just playing the game like i th- thought i was gonna slay dragons
2: no. yeah yeah i i remember reading comics where they'd start doing that i'd think am i supposed to be writing this down do i need a cheat sheet
3: like actively so i don't have to keep flipping back to this page to get all the all the details
0: it reminds me of reading uh song of oh shoot i'm totally now i'm totally blanking song of ice on name. and name song of ice and fire yeah and... R.R. Martin has that tendency. Um, so where do you start? What, how do you like to start laying the groundwork and building onto it?
2: I, I think vague characters in the feeling of a world. You know, So with Mouse Guard, it's about like the, the world building stuff that's, that was already in place before I started issue one Were things like, well, they're mice and they're mice at mouse size. And and the whole idea is it's about being very small in a world that's very big. So they're mice, they're mouse sized, the other animals are gonna be their appropriate sizes. I don't really want to deal with all the other kingdoms and civilizations of like squirrel, you know, things similar in size to a mouse like that wouldn't necessarily be predatory. Squirrels and chipmunks and voles and things like that. So we're just not going to have them. We're going to say that there's an area of space that's called the mouse territories. That's where the mice are. And then the predators uh, need to act like predators and not all animals understand each other's language. Um, and there's a group called the mouse guard and there's a, a central base that's called Lockhaven. Oh, and it's always run by a matriarch. The current one is Gwendolyn. That's it. I don't think I had previous, any previous matriarchs written down. I didn't have the names of cities written down. I had no idea how big or small the mouse territories were. Um, you know i had some vague stuff about like oh there's there's this big war that's happened but i'm i don't want to tell that story because that's a bigger story than i'm capable of handling as my first story and probably bigger than what my audience is willing to swallow as the first story so i'm just going to say that there was this big war with some weasels and we'll just we'll just use that as a backdrop i don't know what happened there but we'll figure it out at some point um I, I have a, a video on YouTube. I, I do creator commentary for my books um, and each chapter gets a, gets its own video. Um, and the first book, the first chapter of the first book, um, the creator commentary obviously gets, gets front-loaded with a lot of like, where did Mouse Guard come from? How did, and that also has to do with the self-published and then how it got from being self-published to Archaea and et cetera. But I also think that one has a lot of really good moments where I'm trying to explain how that first issue had to be that entrance ramp. And um, I think I go in a little more detail there about how little I, uh, the things that I definitely knew in concrete of this is this character, or I always want the mice to go out on patrol together or whatever. Um, And then here's all the stuff I had no clue about. I was making it up.
0: So it's going with the analogy of, the, with the seeds and planting seeds of little story ideas uh with that analogy i almost kind of see it as you're you're outlining the borders of your your fertile field and so you know you yeah, know probably this with is a the, dotted line
3: though
0: okay fair enough yeah yeah can so, it, so it that i can in onwards. between
3: those dots go well there's this one little bit that goes out right here because i yeah i like that but yeah. um so then as you're going are there major like
0: pitfalls along the way that you again going back to now you're you're your Peter Davidson uh, right. <laughs> are there major Pitfalls are there holes in the field that you know are going to be there, and you're like, okay, I have to skirt around these. Am I making this analogy too weird, or are you it, following?
2: It's, it's a little? It's also weird because there is somebody named Peter Davidson who was, of course, of the, he was one of the he was one of the actors who played the Doctor in Doctor Who. So you're also asking me to be a Time Lord, which means that most <laughs> of these questions are meaningless because if I'm a Time Lord, I can just go forward or backward anywhere I want to go and talk to the real David Peterson and and pick his brain, my brain. Wait, what? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, the
3: pitfalls i there's always the you know, paint yourself into a corner, kind of a problem. Um, and i I think that's gonna happen no matter what. Like at some point, you need to write a
2: story or do something that's gonna build off of what you've already got. Um you know it's, no no story comes completely formed in your mind at some point you're going to have to be adding on which means you're going to have to make that completely dovetail into what you already have that exists and that might paint you into a corner it might force your hand i have to go this direction because i've already established it in the previous stuff so it might happen that might happen a little more frequently when you're when you're going that that's slow when you're building the bridge as, as you're crossing the river. Um, it might, it might happen a little bit more frequently, but I, I like it. I, I think it works better for me actually than, than front loading. I lose energy. If I've, if I've written it all, <laughs> and then I'm like, Oh man, now I got to actually like, I got to draw all this. I already, I already came up with a story. The Story's done. But if I'm coming up with it kind of as I'm going and, and working from, from broader outlines, I feel like that's a better, it's a better process.
3: Um, it was I felt actually, like I had something else there, but go ahead.
1: That reminds but, me of uh, people when they're, uh, when they show off their sketch and they get a lot of positive feedback from the sketch and they're like, all right, well, um, I don't really feel like finishing it now because I already got that uh, positive yeah. feedback that I was looking for.
0: Yeah. There's actually a neurological process that supports this above and beyond just personal preference. Uh, which is that your your brain can't distinguish between something that you've uh, talked about in very excited, animated ways to the point where it actually thinks that it's already happened. It can't differentiate between those things and things that you've actually already done. So if you do a lot of, you know, this, all of that front loading, you can actually do exactly what you said where you you blew you okay I've done it all you lose all of the yeah. energy for anything that would come after that because in your brain like you've already done it and your brain doesn't want to go and do the exact same thing all over again so yeah yeah
1: it's like yeah. losing save progress on a a game you're like man I forgot to save for 2 hours and yeah. now I have to go back and do the same thing again I don't want to
2: Absolutely absolutely I've had a couple times where um Uh, a word processor document crashed and I realized I didn't save anything. there was never a ton of work, but it was always enough where it was like, I'm never going to get it back to not, not only do I have to do the same thing again, but I'm never going to get it back to as well worded as I had it the last time. Even if truth be told, it probably wasn't that well worded. I'm just, you know that you're never going to get it quite as good as you had it the first time. And in some ways you probably make it better, but In your head, it's that thing of like, I'm just repaving the same road and it's not going to be as
3: good as the first one.
0: Are there any story bifurcations that you can look back on, you know, like that you didn't take that you recall as like, oh man, you know, I wish that I could have done X instead of Y, but I painted myself into the Y corner. So I had to do that.
2: The only one of those that's really come. So I rely on things like, there's potential with uh, unreliable narrators in the past or, um, you know, there are ways around some of those things. If you're like, well, I also want to say that this character did this other thing. Like, well, did you explicitly say that this character didn't do that? Because if not, you can say, Hey, guess what? In the middle of the night, they went off and did this, (laughs) they did the thing I want them to do. And you just, the reader never got to see it. Um, Those are the, those are the places where I feel like even if there's a, like, ooh, I wish I'd gone that way. I, I still have room to, to maneuver. The only one that really has ever come up was um, I did a spin-off anthology called Legends of the Guard, where I had guest artists come in and tell the tall tales and legends set in the Mouse Guard world. And I gave the creators who did those stories complete free reign. Go ahead, do whatever you want. These are supposed to be like the the Paul Bunyan, Babe Blue Ox kind of stories. Um, for the mice these are they can be morality tales they can just be nursery rhymes whatever you want you do something fun and uh at the point that we were doing this the mouse guard role-playing game had already come out and for the mouse guard role-playing game luke had asked me to write kind of like a brief history of the mouse guard how the mouse guard was formed how the origin of the of their citadel called lockhaven was formed that kind of thing so I already had already established that. And then Jeremy Bastian comes in and draws a story that is kind of his tall tale version of the first two guard mice and the first matriarch and the symbology of the cloaks and their relationship with the wider realm of other animals and beasts. Um, and it was so good. I was mad at him that I didn't come up with it. And I really wish it could be, the origin.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But I've already established the other one. So I'm awesome. trying to find ways to fold it in. I, I have, like, in, uh, in the third book, there's a part where a mouse goes into a, a chamber that's, that's uh, it, it's kind of like a sanctum, a, a, a place of honor for all the past matriarchs. And some of the most notable ones are established in stained glass. Um, and that first matriarch from Jeremy's story is actually the the front and center, like right behind the altar, as it were, uh, stained glass portrait of a past matriarch. So I have incorporated that she was a matriarch at some point. So how much of J- Jeremy's story is true? How much of it is untrue? I'm I'm trying to balance a way to fold that in without completely contradicting myself.
1: I'm um, t- still one of the uh, universe things from Marvel, I guess. Yeah.
2: Parallel dimension uh, uh, multiverses.
1: Yeah, this is universe uh four one six mouse guard. You know, four one seven mouse guard is, was his version.
0: That's dangerous, though. That's dangerous. Yeah, talk about not front loading too much. Yeah, um, don't just come up with one universe. Come up with all of them. But uh, speaking of origins, for you personally as the creator, what were some of the early origins of Mouse Guard? What started planting that seed for you and giving you those ideas
2: in high school. I love talking animal stories and I, I was always better at drawing creatures and animals than I was humans. Um, and in high school uh, some friends and I were, were kind of writing and drawing our own comics or at least trying to. Um, and there were, there were three kind of a core group of three of us who wrote and drew and we were kind of like our own little mini comic company. We were, one guy was working on a comic that took place in modern times. And the next guy was working on something that was going to be like sci-fi. And I was like, well, that means I have to do something set in the past. I like, you know, like Disney's Robin hood. I'm going to do something that's like medieval animals. And, uh, that was, it was called 1149, which is the year that it was set. And, uh, it was, it was very much Disney's Robin hood. I mean, there was a bear, there was a Fox, um, but there was also a ferret and a possum and a duck. Um, and it was kind of like a D and D party, but made out of talking animals that looked more like Disney's versions. Um, they were all human sized with the shortest character being like the equivalent of a very short human and the tallest being the equivalent of maybe the tallest NBA player. Um, and uh, that was high school, and of course, because it's high school, we never really got anything done. Uh, but in college, I wanted to dust the idea off again, and I thought, I don't, I want to make this more serious. I don't want to make this so cartoony. I don't want this to be Disney's Robin Hood. I want this to be like Aesop's Fables meets Tolkien. So I'm going to treat every species like Tolkien would treat a race. It's going to have its own architecture style. It's going
3: to have its own language. It's going to have its own history and and uh, uh, customs. And I'm going to do
2: that with every one of them. It's not just the world of elves, men, dwarves, and halflings. It's the world of geese and warthogs and ferrets and tigers and, you know, wolves and foxes and, yeah, et cetera. And I was like, wow, that's going to be a lot of work, but it sounds fun. What's, what's the biggest, I should put some parameters here. What's the biggest animal that I deal with? And what's the smallest Well, biggest would be something like a, like a grizzly bear. Um, I don't want to go into extinct dinosaur kind of things or anything like that. So I think like a grizzly bear would probably be the biggest. And then the smallest would be like a mouse because I don't want to go into the world of the insects. I think that's going too crazy so uh, that's that's going to be my range and i'm like wow how do you how do you keep smaller creatures involved in a story where they play an active role um if all the other larger creatures are predators like two predators that are both predatory animals you know a fox and a wolf you can kind of figure that there's some kind of way that they're each defending themselves so that they're not in danger from the other one killing them but when you've got like a wolf and a mouse, it's going to take a lot of story crafting to make sure that that wolf never wants to eat that mouse. You you always have to come up with some kind of caveat of like, well, the mouse has information or has something that the wolf needs or whatever. And it's like, that's going to be way too hard to do for an entire story with more than one character and multiple species. So how do you keep, how do you keep these smaller things alive? And I just, I was like, well, I'll come up with this society for mice. I started working on their society. Like how do they protect themselves? And how do they get around from one location to another uh, without, you know, without uh, uh, being attacked. And I came up with this idea of the, the, you know, these group of Rangers, these mouse Rangers called the mouse guard. And as I worked on it, I'm like, this is really the story. This is the interesting part. Um, so I should just focus on the mice and make it the perspective of the mouse and everything else kind of gets just pushed into the background
3: as, as uh, yeah, as predators or, or other things. Um, and th- and then
2: I, I <laughs> during that time, a friend of mine handed me the first book in the Redwall series, which is a young adult series written by uh, Brian Jakes about medieval mice, but also hares and badgers and some other things. And uh, it was—I read that first one. It was really good. I enjoyed it, and I went, "Oh, damn! Someone's already doing this." So I didn't do anything with Mouse Guard for a while. I mean, granted, I was a college student. I had lots of other things going on, uh, both you know, college and then personally with friends and dating and all sorts of stuff like that. So, um, but it was—it was a total of about nine years between when I first drew the very first characters for Mouse Guard. When, when 1149 became Mouse Guard, the first Mouse Guard characters. And uh, about nine years between then and when I started actually drawing issue one of Mouse Guard. So, in that time, I had also, like I said, graduated from college, gotten married, settled down, had some stability, and thought maybe I could do this.
0: So, based on some of those That was a long that...
2: answer, I'm sorry.
0: Oh, no, don't worry. <laughs> Never apologize for long winded answers. Um, <laughs> the lead up to public consumption now um you, you based on some of the things that you've said before I, I can maybe anticipate the answer here but um leading up to mouse guard going live so to speak um was there a lot of learning and planning that you did to begin with or did you just kind of just start producing and learn as you went
3: Uh, I, I mean, it was, it's probably more in the start producing category.
2: I I never had any like formal sit down and study how to write and draw comics, but I also wasn't, I wasn't going in cold. I had been reading comics since I was 11. Um, I was also, uh, very easily critical of comics that were done well and comics I didn't think were done well. And I would even think about like pointing out, this is why these pages are successful. This is why these pages are not successful. Um, I listened to interviews with, uh, or read interviews or listened to interviews with um, comic creators. And, uh, and then I had done uh, that little short 11 page or uh, no, I'm sorry, four page comic for the art history professor for his gallery show kind of a thing with this, you know, this print on demand self-publishing route where I, I had to, really pay attention to things like, uh, where the live area was on a page, where the, where the trim was, uh, how much bleed, all those kind of, you know, technical things about making pages. Um, but other than that, yeah, I kind of just went in cold and, and learned as I went. Well, I, I do remember reading a lot of interviews with, uh, uh established comic creators where you know they're asked that like sound nugget kind of question like what's the one piece of advice you'd tell upcoming comic creators and so many of them would say make sure you learn storytelling and sometimes they'd even boil down what that meant and they're like make sure that the page reads without the dialogue So when I started working on that first issue of mouse guard to really push myself and make sure I was never relying on the dialogue, I actually didn't write any dialogue. I I just wrote like the stage direction and and the outline form of like, this happens, then this happens. They run away. Kenzie says something inspirational here. You know, I might've written down a few little things, like obviously the, the kind of the, the, moral lesson of that first issue is it matters not what you fight but what you fight for i think i had written that by the time i was drawing pages but um yeah what they were saying in individual word balloons i didn't know other than like in this one kenzie's saying something that is reassuring liam that they can go back outside but what he was actually saying i don't know i was going to figure that out when i was
1: all done that actually reminds me a little bit of, um, the early episodes of the rug rats where the babies didn't talk.
3: Oh, I don't remember that.
1: I may I may be entirely wrong. I may be misremembering, but for whatever reason, <laughs> the early seasons, not early season, uh, not having the kids talk.
3: Could
2: very well be. I don't, I just don't, I don't remember that, but that's, that's interesting.
1: I uh, do have a question that popped up as a, a result of this that isn't on our sheet. So I apologize if it, it doesn't come up with no an answer. Um, let's say that you didn't know comic books. Yeah. What what, what form would you think you could have been successful with producing Mouse Guard in?
2: Oh, um, yeah, there there were times. So when I was in high school and even early college, all I knew was that I wanted to do something with art and storytelling. So there were times where I wanted to be uh, a traditional 2D animator or I wanted to be some kind of a special effects or prop artist or I wanted to be a puppeteer. Um I wanted to do children's book illustration. I wanted to do comics. I, there was lots and lots of things I wanted to do. I just wanted to communicate stories with some form of art. So, I mean, I think mouse guard could have been a great, uh, stop motion film. It could have been a great puppetry film, um, or, or short episode thing. It could have been a, a, a written book with single illustrations, uh, like a, like a chapter book with single illustrations per chapter, or maybe a couple of illustrations per chapter. Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's lots. Of, and I really think that I can envision any version of those and it's still working. The The one that I think I would have wanted to avoid the most was a chapter book with illustrations. And that's only because of the Redwall thing. Like R- Redwall had definitely already done that. And so uh, having, having already felt like for a long time there, oh, I can't do Mouse Guard because Brian Jakes already has. Um, to then pick up and go, like, well, and I'm going to do it in prose and with a couple beautiful illustrations. Like, yeah, that's definitely retreading the same wheel.
1: You do have uh, Mouse Guard, the uh, tabletop game. Could you have made an entire franchise based on tabletop uh, mouse guards?
2: I suppose. I feel like there needs to be some kind of introduction. I mean, yeah, I guess. I guess. Because there are other um, kind of anthropomorphic, medieval anthropomorphic tabletop games that are out right now. I'm blanking on all of their names. There's mice and mystics, but there's also—I want to say—it's called Humblewood.
1: Humblewood. Uh, We have uh, Humblewood, the uh, art director uh, coming up as a future guest.
2: Oh, cool. And and root, and so there are several of those that didn't have any kind of you know IP presence before their game. So I guess it's possible. Um, I don't know how effective I could be in trying to communicate all that, like, you know, the the role playing game book that we already have is, is pretty thick and it's relying to some degree on if you need more reference, go read the books. Hmm. Um, I don't know how we could have done that without making the mouse guard uh,
3: rule book being three books long.
1: (laughs) Expansions, I guess.
3: Yeah, I guess. If
0: I'm remembering the, order of events in the timeline correctly it it seemed like you starting to go to conventions and the advent of the mouse card as a fully realized comic sort of dovetailed pretty closely together but did you from that point did you have the intention for it to become a business venture or was it still just kind of like passion project for the foreseeable future
3: Uh I think it was I certainly didn't set out to go I'm going
2: to make this comic and it's going to allow me to quit my job and it's going to become my career and it's going to provide you know this one comic is going to be my my way in um, and I don't remember exactly where where the time frame works I know that the first first convention I went to was 6 months before it was the fall of 2004. And then in the spring of 2005 is when the first issue of mouse guard comes out. So um, I know that timeline, but some, somewhere in there uh, again, Jesse Glenn, my good friend, best friend. Uh, he is the Kenzie to my Saxon. Um, I was working at the antique store and uh, I was calling him to figure out, I think we were like figuring out if we could get together that weekend and do something. And he was managing a, a coffee shop at the time. And we were talking about, you know, needing, needing to get to draw and needing the, the drawings to become a bigger part of our lives than just a casual when we can get together and draw. And he, he kind of lit a fire under me, I think without even realizing it. He's like, we got to do
3: something because we can't be doing coffee and antiques when we're 40, And it just kind of made me aware that
2: there was no room really for upward mobility at the job I was at. And there was nothing with that job that would help me get a better job. It would allow me maybe to make a lateral move. You know, maybe uh, the next job could be better because it would be, you know, closer to home or whatever. But it wasn't going to be any kind of like, hey, look, I've moved up in the world. I've just moved sideways. And then with art, I was like, the only way that that's going to happen is if I do something about it. Like the idea that just posting stuff randomly, fan art randomly on on message boards was going to have some art director call me and say, we want you to do a comic series. Wasn't going to happen. No, no one's going to just show up and say, we want you to do something. You got to, you got to produce it. You got to put it out there in the world. Um so it's kind of the culmination of of that realizing this art thing isn't going to happen unless you go for it, unless you try something Um, and, and realizing that the, the long-term future of, of the day job was just going to stay plateaued. And, uh, and so it wasn't, it wasn't like doing mouse guard was the thing that was going to get me out, but it wasn't, it it was a step in the right direction. It wasn't going to hurt. It was only going to help even if it was a complete failure. And the only thing about it was that was positive was, Hey, look, I, I, I learned all these mistakes
3: not to make next time. It was still going to be a positive step. So it, what, I was just really lucky and that it went right. It, it all went right. So what was the turning point where you s-
0: realized, okay, I can quit my day job now. And did you see it? And that of, was when the,
2: well i saw it coming in that i i wanted to like so for that first year when i'm when i'm writing and drawing issues and Arkea is publishing it nationally i'm having to schedule time off from work and there was a very complex way of seniority and asking for days off and who could get one weekend and and then having to trade with people and do favors like i really need this block of time off well they were like well i'm going to colorado for a ski trip then like but I really need that weekend off because I know like that's New York comic-con or that's whatever it is. Um, and having to work around that schedule, I wanted to quit within that first year just because mouse guard was taking off. I was getting uh, like the, the first issue of mouse guard that Archaea published, we had a marketing strategy of uh, you know, Di- diamond solicits, comic shops and says you know we have this we have this new comic coming out how many copies would you like to order and then arcade gets those numbers and then prints based on those numbers we ended up printing just a sliver over what was ordered knowing that that would mean that we would sell out very quickly um we would be able to fulfill everybody what everybody requested but if anybody asked for any restock we were going to immediately have to go back to press. And what that means is we can set out a press release saying, Mouse Guard issue one sold out. It's so in demand. We had to go back to press. Right, And we knew that, and we played the game. The thing is, we didn't realize how in demand it was, and actually the fact that it was selling out and was harder to get made that problem worse. So we thought we'd do this initial print run that's really close to orders, and we'd do a small bumper and that would cover us. Well, we did our small bumper as planned, except the demand was already exceeding what our small bumper was. And then we went to a third printing and a fourth printing. And that all happened like we were selling out within two days of issue one coming
3: out. So I'm ready to quit the job right there. But Julia and I you know, sat down and went.
2: What's the reality though? Like we have to really look at what are our expenses? What if this all felt, what if this all went away two months from now? What does that mean? How quickly could I get another illustration job? No, 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 we should stick with the job for a while. And then it was when the um, when the hardcover numbers came in, when the pre-orders for the, for the hardcover edition. And we looked at those and we calculated what that meant in terms of a royalty check. And we went, okay, so I need to be out there at more conventions, promoting this thing, signing copies. I need to get work on the second book done faster than I did or, or more efficiently. Um, the day job is doing nothing but holding that up. So let's pull that trigger. So it it was expected in that I wanted it to, but because we had decided to be very fiscally responsible, I had no idea when that was going to happen when it was going to become fiscally responsible enough to quit. Um, so when the hardcover numbers came in, it was both expected, but also unexpected because we didn't know that that was going to be the tipping point.
1: I'm uh, so a little surprised that you were able to find success uh, on your own in comics. Uh, my understanding has been talking to other artists is uh, there's like no money in the comics, either as an artist or as a creator, because there's so much competition. You're going to be drowned up by Marvel and DC and Where do you even get the eyes to uh, look on this level and people buy it? Do you have any thoughts about how to do anything at this level, at this point in time as a beginner?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that uh, competing against Marvel and DC, what that really is going to boil down to is don't try to do the same kind of things they're trying to do. I think if you wanted to make an independent comic and
3: you want to make it about superheroes, you've got a crazy uphill battle. Um, if, if you say something different, if you make
2: a horror comic, if you make a Western, if you make a slice of life kind of comic, if you make something that's very personal, uh, autobiographical, um, some kind of fantasy in a way that's a little different than what's being offered out there. I think there's plenty of room um, to maneuver. Um, obviously, the, the, the whole system is a little different now than it was, but... Um, When I started, but the idea of going to a convention and being able to set up and get eyes on your stuff isn't impossible. Um, Digital in some ways makes that easier to get your stuff out there. Like you can, you know, you can talk to comiXology as an individual and say, hey, I've got this comic and I'd like for you guys to list it in your store and um, come up with a contract between the two of you. Uh, The downside of digital is uh, how do you separate the wheat from the chaff as as a consumer? So there's so much out there. It is kind of easy to get drowned out virtually, but that's going back to that. Like if I was Peter Davidson, what kind of things would I do? You get, you got to build a sense of community. You got to get people who see your work, who are going to recommend it to other people. Um, and in some ways that goes beyond just your work. I think it can also be about who you are as a creator. You know, my fans have just as much connection to me and Julia and knowing about what's going on with our dogs or, Um, you know, that I'm a Michigander, like that's part of the identity that people know about with Mouse Guard, just as much as they know the artwork. Um, and I know that's not a comfortable space for everybody, but I, I think that there's a, there's a part of that that can help get more eyes on it so that it's not just about, it's about the complete package. It's about knowing exactly who's making this thing so that it puts it in context. Um, but yeah, it's it's um, it's possible to have a comfortable life. I think um, th- the distribution system is hard. Uh, so th- also, when you say going at it alone, I only self-published the very first issue that was in black and white, and then I got a publishing contract with Archaea. Um and then they published the first issue in color, and then everything subsequent. So every hardcover, every everything has all been done with a publisher. So they're doing all of the talking to the printer financing, the printing, doing the advertising, getting booth space, all that kind of stuff. Um, they're the ones working with, with diamond and, uh, and the distribution company. Uh, if you had to do that on your own, that's hard. And also if you are self publishing, probably the, the percentage that you're going to be able to, the, uh, the the cost of goods to manufacture is going to be higher for you than it might be for even a small publisher. Uh, especially if you're doing like a print on demand, just because of volume, if you've ever gone and had like party invitations printed, you know that the more you print, the more per item, the cost comes down. Um, so just the volume that a publisher is going to be able to get to because they're distributing means they're going to have a lower per unit cost than you as an individual might, especially if you're going print on demand. And when the distributor needs to buy it at less than wholesale, because then they're selling it to their stores for, you know, to the stores for wholesale and the stores have to make money and then they're selling it to their customers. um, That's harder. What it just means is you have to, you have to sell direct to consumer if you're going at it alone. Um, and now with online stores and Etsy and all that kind of stuff, that's easier now than it ever has been other than it's easy to get drowned out because there's lots of stuff out there. But it's I think it's very doable. I think Kickstarter has also kind of proven, you know, while you can have success selling thousands of copies of something uh, through a regular distribution chain, if you go through Kickstarter and the money comes direct to you, you can sell hundreds and actually make more money than you would have doing thousands through the normal distribution chain. Um, But that also means you have fewer fans consuming and with uh, people falling away, you know, between volume one and volume two, it's going to make volume two that much harder to get out
1: have you been with the same publisher throughout or have you changed publishers?
2: I've been with Arkea throughout. We've had a couple of Rocky times, uh, when there have been regime changes at the top. Um, but we've been able to work, uh, work things out. And, uh, and then most recently they were purchased by boom, uh, which was an established comic, uh, publisher. And, uh, and things have been very steady since then. Um, Archaea had some great moments and had some not great moments when it was completely independent and other people would come in and then people would try to raise investment opportunity and things like that. And it really all depended on who was in the room at what time for what the mood and tone of Archaea was. Um, but as uh, once Boom was able to uh, to pick them up and absorb them, um, it's been it's been very steady, very consistent. So I've stuck with uh, I've stuck with them.
1: We haven't had a guest on that has uh, worked with a publisher before, so I'm a little curious hmm. to rain on this if you uh, wouldn't mind. Okay. Um, so why would somebody want to work with a publisher rather than uh, you mentioned some things already, so we don't have to go over this again. But like as far as like the uh, payoff, how much do you have to uh, lose in order to work with a publisher versus how much you have to gain from working with a publisher.
2: Yeah. So without going too much into specifics, uh, I have a slightly different contract than most of the regular people do at boom. And that all has to do with when Arkea was founded. Uh, it was founded by a guy who was a creator who had been uh, mistreated by a publishing company had gotten his rights back and started Arkea so that he could self publish his comic. So when he opened the doors for other creators, his crea- his contract was very creator-friendly. And I have, for the most part, been able to keep that contract exactly intact and the way it was from the beginning. Um, it's been grandfathered in. So I know that the base contract with publishing companies is
3: not the same as what I have. Um, but, uh, I mean, to, to it,
2: I wear a lot of hats to be able to create mouse guard. I write it. I pencil it. I ink it. I color it. I letter it. I do all the digital work of getting it ready for press. um, And then I maintain the mouse guard website and all that kind of stuff. That's just to create the work to then publish it. There are lots of hats there. I can only wear so many hats. So if you're a sole creator working on your property and you're already finding lettering, web presence, coloring, drawing, etc. already a handful. I don't know that you want to be adding in print supervisor, marketing, uh, print financier, a ad- say advertising, advertising again, let's say. <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, and then the distribution chain storage, shipping, um, yeah it's it's it's
2: there's a lot. i I've, because of all the years of being at Archaea and even getting to see, like I said, different um different regime changes and seeing how different different versions of Archaea has handled those things at different times because sometimes they have a warehouse that they own, where the books go. And then Archaea has those. It means they can dip into that stock if they want to go to a convention. It means that they can. Uh, uh, ship them out to Diamond when Diamond says, Hey, we need more copies. But that's their facility that they're managing. Now, if you're an individual, that means your garage or you're getting a storage unit or something like that. Arkea has also at times worked with a company that does warehousing. So Arkea doesn't own that building. They're just saying, Hey, you guys uh, will store our stuff for us. There's also somebody there, so that when we call up and say we need three more copies or th- you know three more pallets of this, and we need it shipped here or we need it shipped there, you guys will just ship it for us, and that's all part of the you know part of the payment fee that they that they do with them. So there's there's different ways of doing it, and researching for an individual what works best is a lot of work. You know, yes, you can do it all. It's totally possible as an individual to do all of those things. Um, but yeah, a publisher, a publisher is going to have a better chance at getting good convention presence. A publisher, if we ever get back to conventions, that is, uh, a publisher is going to have better distribution models. It's going to have better ways of storing. It's going to be able to get better price breaks on printing. It's going to be able to competitively shop at multiple printers. Because it also means that like, when a publisher is ready to publish a volume of Mouse Guard, chances are they have a couple more books that they also need to publish. And so they can strike a deal with a, pub, with a printer. And instead of just saying, hey, we need X number of copies of Mouse Guard, what can you do for us with a price? They're saying, we're publishing three books right now. We're printing three books right now. With that volume of work, what kind of price break can you give us? And then they can shop that around to multiple, multiple printers. So they're going to get a, a, the best kind of deal just because of volume. Um, in terms of keeping costs low, does so there's, that, there's lots of bonuses.
1: Does that uh, better deal actually make it make its way towards you, or is that the publisher uh, keeping the extra proceeds?
2: No, I have a um, so so the the deal I have, and it's the way most creator contracts work at publishers. Not all. Um, I know Image Image has a very specialized creator uh, contract, but uh, for most creator owned contracts at publishers, it's a profit split. Um, after costs are absorbed, so um, you know we we get the breakdown. If they say this is how much it cost to print, this is how much we're in the red because of this and advertising and shipping, and then they say this is how many units sold at this you know at this price. This is how many sold at this price for various uh, uh, discounts for either distribution or just, you know convention sales or whatever, and then we just split the profit. So if it costs less to print, yeah, we're going to be getting out of the red faster.
1: Our friend Shane in chat said to listen to you and uh, to also do their homework before uh, uh, signing anything and also have a lawyer look over to it.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I've had, I've had uh, a couple different lawyers really save my butt when it came to contract stuff. Um, I've also been fortunate enough that the, the first contract that I had to sign was the one with Mark Smiley, who had founded Archaea. Um, And it was written in very plain English and was very creator friendly. Um, And so at the point where I wasn't really in this industry and I didn't know who to contact in terms of an entertainment lawyer and I couldn't really even afford getting a lawyer at that time you know, or or worrying about the added expense, um, that contract happened to be very simple for me. It's, again, one of those times where I was just really fortunate and the stars aligned for me. Um, the later times where I had lawyers that were saving my butt, I was already well known in the industry and was able to either have good contacts or could get good recommendations or had the finances to be able to say, okay, I need to hire you to look at this and make sure I'm not getting screwed.
1: The thing is, uh when someone says like do your homework the hard part is uh, often you don't realize what you need to what questions you would ask until after you had already gotten to the situation like when i bought this house i was told you look for, look at everything okay well i didn't know to look at the pipes inside the uh in the uh access panels stuff like that but mm-hmm. now after the fact i have to replace those pipes because i didn't look at them before but now you have that experience so what are some uh things that you think that are easy to miss but would be really good for to to think about with starting.
2: Um, yeah, the, the the things about contracts that you need to be aware of are when do they end or do they ever end is is the thing you need to watch out for. Is is there ever a time where this will just naturally end? Um, whether it's a, a ticking clock or after something is out of print for a certain amount of time um, or does this just go on in perpetuity? Um, that's something to watch out for and and I don't want to give some kind of a blanket. This is how it should be because everybody's case is different, but knowing how it ends or when it ends naturally. And then there's also, um, if there's ever any kind of like breach clause um, where one party doesn't live up to their part of the deal and the other party wants to cancel because of that once uh, wants, wants to say now that now the contract is not valid because there was a breach um, knowing how the breach clause works, including do they have time to rectify it? So like a very common kind of breach clause would be something like uh, a publisher needs to pay you every quarter uh, based on if there are any profits to be had and they need to show you some kind of a statement breaking down what the profits are, if there are any. And they have 30 days or 60 days from the close of the quarter to provide that for you. Okay. Now, if, and to accurately provide that to you. Now, if 61 days comes and goes and you don't have a statement, do you just get to go breach? Or they pay you, there's an accounting error and they pay you $1,000 less than they owe you. Do you just get to say breach? Whole thing's canceled. Probably not. There's probably a thing in there that allows them an additional certain amount of time, 30 days, 90 days, something, to rectify the situation. Um, And that can be good because, obviously, a publisher who makes a simple accounting error or because of a weird holiday break or somebody having to be out sick means that they might get something to you late. There might be an error. As long as they rectify it, right, the relationship should go on. But that can also create a loophole where it's possible for a publisher to Um, not do what they say until you call breach. And then when you call breach, they still have 30 days to make it right and you can't get out of it. And they can continue to do that every time if they're a terrible publisher. So just being aware of what those situations are. Um, I think also knowing about the, uh, the stuff about uh, how the finances are calculated. Um, you know, from, from if, if people remember back to high school math, there is an order of operations when it comes to certain mathematical problems. And if you, you know, if you do the multiplication before you do the subtraction or if you do the subtraction before you do the multiplication, it comes up with very different numbers in the end. And so how are things calculated? How what percentage is the percentage being calculated before or after their subtraction? for, for various fees, things like that. Um, most of that should be pretty simple to read out, but it's, you need to figure out where percentages come out and when.
0: Sounds like you might um, need an accountant on top of a lawyer.
2: I think a lawyer would be pretty, I mean, usually a lawyer is pretty good at being able okay. to, especially if it's an entertainment lawyer. Um, cause yeah, that's, that's one of the things that they're dealing with the most is trying to make sure that you can retain some kind of rights, um, to be able to like, usually an entertainment lawyer is doing stuff more like with, with movie or TV or film kind of stuff than, than publishing contracts. But even still, um, it's, it's about you retaining some kind of rights to your IP, but also making sure that you get the best financial deal. Cause that also means they get the best financial deal.
0: So that some of that touches a little bit on uh, the next question that I had, um, above and beyond working with a, a publisher, I'm curious. To hear a little bit about uh, protecting your IP when it comes to licensing uh, and copyright, and I won't name the corporation. You can if you w- want to, or I don't know if it's what the legality are, that is there. But uh, are we uh, talking about you, Disney? Is that yeah? You have some dark stories okay. to tell about Disney. Yeah. Um, the silver lining to those to that well, yeah, to those stories. uh, is that you came out the other end still retaining rights to create your mm-hmm. comics. Um, can you tell us a little bit about navigating that process so you didn't lose everything to Disney, which <laughs> could, could have happened, I guess, right?
2: Yeah, well, prob- probably not. Um, yeah, so for, for those unaware, the, the Mouse Guard film rights were sold to Fox. Um, that's, a, that's a deal that I made. Um, They were in the process of being purchased by Disney at the time. We knew that that was happening. That wasn't a complete surprise. We didn't know that the deal would necessarily go through. We had also helped. We were far enough into filming that Disney wouldn't cancel us. You know, we'd be far enough into filming that there'd be no reason for Disney to even get involved with, uh, with a mouse guard film because they'd be looking at the stuff that would be easier for them to stop and save money on. Um, uh, but yeah, so the, the, film rights were sold to Fox, um, and then Disney bought Fox and we were not as far in and, uh, and yeah, Disney, just like any corporate takeover, there's, there's a kind of a, uh, marking your territory, pissing contest kind of a thing where the the new parent company wants to say everything belongs to us now and, We make the rules, not you old company makes the rules. So if there's any old outstanding contracts that we had an opportunity to get out of, we're going to get out of them because we want our boilerplate on those with all of our clauses, our legal clauses and what we ask for. We don't want the loopholes you guys would have allowed. Um, We also want our execs to have the power, not your execs to still have power. It's that. There's some of that kind of stuff. Involved, so that's that's ultimately what happened. Um, But all of the right stuff for me still to be able to create things were all ironed out when it was just Fox, Um, and and I've I'd gone to bat a few different times with movies. Um, uh, You know, the, the the Fox go around was not my first at dealing with studios and looking at contracts and negotiating with with producers and that kind of thing um and i think it was pretty standard that i would be able to create comics i don't think there was ever a version that came my way uh, uh yeah uh contract wise or movie offer wise where they were like hey we own everything and you could no longer make mouse guard comics i don't think that was ever i think everybody's smart enough to know that's not gonna fly with me and it's also not in their best interest um but other rights did get restricted in the older uh versions where we would have to negotiate and so that is where i had an entertainment lawyer working with me for the fox deal um and most of it was was pretty obvious it was just getting it written into legalese and having somebody else be there in the room to uh to negotiate for me so that I'm not there feeling hot-headed and taking it personally <laughs> um you know it's, it's nice to have someone who already speaks that language and can just go like hey this is what my client wants take it or leave it where I'm like how dare you how dare you you know that so would be uh, <laughs> yeah um, but, the, but we we agreed pretty early on what we said was, We want it so that while obviously there's film and media rights and merchandising rights that get tied up with uh, any kind of a film deal, that it should not infringe on the way that Julia and I run Mouse Guard right now. So I should still be able to make books. I should still be able to keep making the kind of uh, tabletop games that I'm making. I should still be able to go to conventions and make t-shirts and prints Um, We had a little bit of merchandise at the time. We had some little uh, plush mouse guard stuffed animals and uh, enamel pins and things like that. And so we just came up with a legalese way of saying convention merchandise. I can still make convention merchandise where I also don't have to share any of the profits with them because it's such small potatoes.
3: It's ridiculous to what they're talking about. Um, so yeah they were pretty amenable to that we
2: uh, there was i think there was a little bit of um we did retain the rights to do uh, i think we called it classic (laughs) classic merchandise or something like that meaning that uh you know if there's a mouse guard film being made there's obviously going to be an aesthetic to that that's different than my book just because movies are different than books it's going to be an interpretation So, and also there'd be, you know, probably character changes and, you know, other little details with costuming and, you know, colors and proportions and stuff. So they can make all the movie merchandise they want, but if I want to make a statue or a new game or a new whatever that's based on my classic look, the the look of my books... I still have the rights to do that. And there was a little bit of, I remember some finagling there that the, that the lawyer had to do. That was, that was a little bit of a trick, but I I think the, the base part of like, Hey, I still get to go to conventions and make prints. I still get to go to conventions and, and, you know, print up some t-shirts and hand sell them. You know, nobody at Fox was like, how dare you? They were like, of course, David and Julia should be able to keep doing what they're
0: doing at conventions. So when
2: That's you're at- it was not, it was not it was not it was not boiler it was not boilerplate. My lawyer did have to work with them. It wasn't
3: a fight, but they did have to actually create those clauses.
0: Were you gonna say something, Moose?
1: I said, well, you can continue doing uh, conventions, but you know, as long as there isn't a pandemic in the next Right, year.
0: right. So when you're at this point, you know, where Fox is talking about making your movie. And that's not even like the the first movie negotiation that you've been through your creation has now taken on this life that i would just as an outsider i don't know if you feel this but as an outsider i would imagine that would just feel um so big that you're now looking up at this thing that you were once looking down on as the creator and the master of this universe and when we get into a personal project we're completely liberated from any external pressures, you know, you could just you, you do whatever you want to do. It's your world. Now, when it's kind of a dome above you in that way, <laughs> do, you come, do you get to a point where you start feeling like an employee of your own IP?
2: I don't think the movie stuff ever made me feel that way.
3: Um, Maybe I not think the I was movie also... stuff. Yeah, but just yeah. like kind
0: of like when it reaches that tipping point of cultural uh, identifiability. Yeah.
2: I think it's it's the fan. It's not even that it's widespread or anything like, or like cultural identity, or that it's big enough now where there could be a movie. What it what it really is is meeting with passionate fans, whether they are emailing me or it's a online message boardy kind of thing or Twitch or Discord or something like that, or if it's um, in person at a convention. Back when we could do those things uh where they are impassioned and they have questions and they're like look i've looked it up in the role-playing game and this character does this and this does this now that mean in the next book in the weasel war are we going to find more out about blah, blah 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 and they're giving very like specific real stuff and it just shows you that there's a level of expectation like not only have i been building a level of expectation on myself that i want every book to be better Than the last one. I want to do a better job at what I did last time. I want to break new ground. I want to try something different. I don't want to just tell the same story, but I also want it to be better art-wise. I want it to be better storytelling-wise. You know. And then there's the fan expectation. And there's a little bit of that. The more books you tell, or the more stories you tell, the more you're painting yourself into that corner potentially. And this this next book that I'm working on right now is. A prequel. It's the Weasel War. It's that war that I talked about at the beginning where it's like, oh, I, we'll figure that stuff out later. Um, so I've had years of thinking about what that could be uh, in just like building it up for myself. I was very careful not to pin down too many details so I didn't lock myself too much into a corner or have to rewrite it after I've already written it. But now, it's this this vague cloud monster hanging over my head that includes all the fan expectations all of my own expectations uh world setting expectations like hey in this you you've kind of already promised you need to explain this 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 and this um yeah it's a lot and because of that this next book is going very slowly
0: (laughs) yeah um younger people that might not know this story or even know who Bob Dylan is maybe. Are we at that generation yet where kids kids don't know about Bob Dylan? But anyway, he's folk singer, strictly acoustic, uh, decides to go electric. Fans lose their shit. They're burning his records. They're boycotting. It's just like complete mayhem. Uh, because he, he wanted to go from acoustic folk to electric rock. uh, do you ever feel like Bob Dylan? <laughs> uh, not, no, I
2: don't think I do. Um, to, yeah. Cause to stretch that metaphor, um, means I would be delving into some other kind of, uh, like storytelling style, even, maybe even switching mediums, like going from, uh, or, or, you know, like instead of doing comics, doing children's book illustration or animation or puppetry or something by myself, um, or it just means like switching genres, like instead of doing this kind of fantasy all ages adventure story going like, I'm going to do something that's straight horror. And I, I, I don't mind dabbling in those things or playing with the idea of those things, but I, I never have enough of an itch where I'm like, yeah, I just want to do straight horror right now, or I want to do straight comedy comics right now, or I want to, I just want to do puppetry. I never, I never feel that way. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't have as much of a, of a feeling locked in. Occasionally, that, and, and I think that I do have some variant cover work for other publishers. I get hired to do Ninja Turtle covers or Isagi Ojimbo or Lock and Key and stuff like that. And uh, when I get to do those, there's enough of a like scratching a different itch where it's not Mouse Guard that uh, it feels good to be getting back into Mouse Guard.
1: What about a, a cabin in the woods type of thing where the uh, audience <laughs> expects you to go a certain route and you choose not to go that route. So they oh. uh, destroy the world.
2: <laughs> oh boy. I hope not. I hope nobody's that upset with anything that I do ever, ever. Uh, yeah. It's a balance though. Right. Cause uh, especially when it's a prequel story, um, but also, you know, I've established myself as a certain, certain kind of storyteller, and I think people have expectations about what that means. Um, I've, I know that obviously right now, you know, in, or in recent years, J.K. Rowling has proved to be a, a problematic creator, but I, I still, separating the art from the artist, I still love those books to death. Um, and I think that if you look at the tonal differences between the first book and the seventh book, and kind of seeing the progression in between they are very different but there's nothing so dissimilar from book one to book seven that that growth makes sense and that's that's kind of like where i want to be in terms of that like they all get a little bit more complicated they all get a little bit darker they not even darker but just you know they they deal with more stuff more real emotions as they go on um and i think that reflects both the story needing to get more complicated but also the growth of the creator who's making them and having the, all the experiences of the previous books under their belt and that's that's what i want for me so i want the next book to definitely be different so there should be things in there that you didn't see coming and feels like growth but i don't want it to be so different where you feel like as a as an audience member i've betrayed you i've i've completely changed who i am I, w- I was in disguise all along
1: yeah, I think there's like two versions about that right there's the uh reasonable oh i, I can see why he they made that uh, d- that decision it makes if it it's the story you know, like uh say the red wedding with uh, Game of Thrones uh song of ice and fire right that totally changed the story, but mm-hmm. it fit versus um if they were to if you were to suddenly make a change that was making mostly like half the audience uncomfortable, like you were to make mm-hmm. a, your political views known or whatever, and have that turn into the new story. Like your modern contemporary political, yeah. views known that sort of thing. So it, there's like different ways that it can be handled either poorly or uh, more reasonably.
2: Sure. Sure.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I think the the book needs to stay within reason of what it always was um plot, plot twists are different than drastic changes to the tone of the book
0: well not to make too hard of a pivot away from a mouse card <laughs> um but uh w- while we still have a a bit of time left to us i, I definitely want to get into uh plugging online con because this is a great concept this is a great yeah. thing that, that you've started doing um you know, back in 2020, when all conventions were decimated, some moved to online platforms. Um, and you took the bold step, and is said, I'm going to do my own. And you made <laughs> OnlineCon, very straightforward name. Um, can you tell no us? One the, uh, no no one, one was using it. No one was using
2: OnlineCon as its own thing. I was amazed.
0: It's brilliant. Um, well, tell us a little bit about that. What is OnlineCon?
2: Sure on, so online con is a is an event on my twitch stream um where I'm trying to recreate some of the feeling of being at a convention again um, i I saw how in the early days, different people were trying to organize different things. And there were people who were doing blocks of time and then rating the next group. I saw people who were just making a landing page that had links to all kinds of different online stores, individual artists, online stores. And while I applaud the idea of trying to form that community, it just didn't feel cohesive enough. Um, it, It always kind of reminded me of like, back in the early days of the internet where you'd be on a, a ring, there used to be uh, link rings where if you were a certain kind of a page, you could get in the puppetry ring of links and you'd even put in code so that at the bottom of your page, there was a next previous and random and it would just go to some other random, let's say puppetry web Um, but they were, there was nothing really in common with them except somebody moderated all of those things together. Um, and it was on the it was the impetus of the user to move on to the next thing, uh, on, onto the next page. So I thought I want to do mine where it's all on my Twitch stream. Um, and there's only so much me sitting there drawing that people are going to want to watch. You know, so actually, the first one I ever did of these was back when Emerald City was canceled at the beginning of 2020, and I had bought a lot of product, and I was like how am I going to, I got to move this stuff. I can't just put it in my store and just say, hopefully it'll sell. I need need to, you know, um, promote it. And at that time I didn't have a regular streaming schedule. So I said, so at that point me drawing was a novelty online and I went, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit and stream all the hours that I would normally be at the convention and we'll run an online sale. And just to break up the monotony once per day, I'm going to, I'm going to, pull up Skype and I'm going to Skype call one of my friends. We're going to call Jeremy Bastion. We're going to call Corey Godby. We're going to call Katie Cook. We're going to call Jesse Glenn, but only once per day for like 20 to 40 minutes, just, just for funsies. And people really enjoyed it and said, when are you going to do another online con? So I did one in the middle of last year, but I was like, at this point I'm I'm streaming regularly. So the novelty of just me sitting and drawing isn't enough. And it didn't feel like I was getting that community. So I said, this time we're going to have guests. So I'm going to alternate between hours of me, an hour of me drawing, and then I'm going to bring on a guest. So for eight hours a day for five days, we've got uh, a total of 40 hours of streaming with 20 different guests. Um, and I try to bring together all different kinds of stuff. I don't want to just bring together comic book artists or just comic book inkers or people just in comics. I want to bring in lots of stuff. I try to bring in writers, uh, sculptors, um, uh, people who do music, all kinds of things. So yeah, I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, just this coming week uh, from Wednesday, which is the 24th through Sunday, the 28th, I'll be streaming from two to eight, two to 10 PM Eastern time. uh, Every one of those days. And we're going to have a really great, List of guests that include comic book artists, art archivists and historians, uh, colorists, inkers, illustrators, puppeteers, directors, um, musicians. We have somebody who's going to come on and do a baking segment. <laughs> show us uh, how to how to bake a pie. I think she's doing a pie. So yeah, we're actually where can we find
1: this information. Yeah.
2: Uh, so on my blog. I have a, a post about online con, um, but you have to scroll back a couple weeks. Um, so I do a new blog post every Tuesday. I will probably on this coming Tuesday repost all the online con information again, so that it's right at the top during the convention so that people can find the schedule. It's also available here in uh, on my discord channel. Um, and I think you can get that info on my, twitch page you might not be able to when i'm not streaming you might have to type exclamation point discord when i'm live i should probably correct that um but on yeah on my discord channel there's a there's a link for um or a a whole section for online con with uh with the schedule and with all the faces and the all the events going on and i release new products as well there's going to be some new prints going in my online store and i'll open up a commission list um but I'm, I'm ultimately more excited about all the guests that are going to be coming in.
1: We'll grab a, a link to your discord and put it in the show notes as well. So if somebody awesome. finds it through here, we'll uh, link through that. Thank you.
0: Have you only done your own online convention or have you participated in any of the other online convention offerings? I don't think I have other than, um,
2: yeah, I don't think I've done any of the other online convention offerings. I've, I've done, during this time, I've
3: done a couple, like, school visits. Um, I don't think I've done... I don't think so. I
2: You know, over the last year, I've done a lot of staring at that little green light on my, you know, my webcam, talking into a microphone to virtual faces. Uh, I don't think any of them have been for conventions, though.
1: Well, who knows, right?
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, (laughs) Who
2: who knows what I'm doing? Who are you guys again? What's this that I'm on? Uh, Well,
0: what have uh, been some big highlights for you in your own online convention? Things that really stand out for you as great memories when you've done this in the past.
3: Uh, So last
2: time back in August and all the all the online con stuff is archived on my Twitch page if you go to the videos section um, unfortunately because I stream nonstop throughout the day each one of those videos is 8 hours long <laughs> so there's a lot to get through if you want to get to you know try to scrub through to a specific part um, first of all I think I've been excited about every guest every guest has had something really interesting but you know sometimes there's a there's a convergence of a couple uh, uh, you know a couple stars that that align and you go holy cow that only comes around once every 1000 years kind of a thing um and we had five of the concept artists from the Mouse Guard film able to come in and get clearance to show concept work and to talk about it and they were joining us i think from three different continents um while we talked which was was really cool just to, I kind of made a point of like, this isn't about being sad and, 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 you know, wallowing in, Oh, the mouse guard film didn't happen. This is about celebrating the fact that these people's work finally is able to be seen. Let's, let's get to see what they were doing and what they were thinking and just be grateful that we get to see this stuff and celebrate their artistry. Um, That was pretty special. Um, I wrote a new mouse guard story for the last online con and we had actress Meredith Salinger who was Natty Gann in the journey of Natty Gann. And she was in dream, a little dream. She's done some star Wars animated voice acting. Uh, she came in and, and read that story aloud for the audience. So everybody got a new mouse guard story read by Meredith Salinger. Um, we had a really interesting panel that was, uh, the science of mouse guard, uh, a friend of mine, Kishore Hari does, Uh, a regular thing, or he used to do it in person back in the long, long ago when we could see each other in person. Um, Now he does a a version of it on Twitch, but it was um, called the science of movies. And you used to do it at the Alamo draft house. And they would do like a little, maybe 20 minute preamble before showing some kind of a movie where they would talk a little bit briefly about the science of the movie. Then they'd watch the movie. And then at the end of the movie, they would do an actual presentation on the merits of the science in the movie. And it wasn't just beating up Hollywood for getting it wrong. It was also like, let's take this part as true. And then what's the science implications after that? Or how close is this to real science, even if the details they got were wrong? Um, and he did one of those that was the science of Mouse Guard uh, that was fast. I knew it was going to be interesting because Kishore sure is great, but I really didn't know how good that was going to be. Uh, Was that from the the, uh,
1: first or second? That Uh, was from the first.
2: Yeah. That's so the, yeah, the second one, we've got some great stuff coming up, but obviously hasn't happened yet. So I, I don't know how great it's all going to be. Um, but yeah, coming up, we we're going to have a musical performance from very handsome Billy. Who's a streamer on Twitch. Um, we've got the baking segment from Aaron Godby. Meredith Salinger is going to come back and read a, a story. Um, Armand Balthazar is an illustrator for a book series called timeless. And, uh, he does those kind of special books that are like uh, like a James Gurney Dinotopia, those hybrid books where it's not a picture book, but it's not just an illustrated novel. Like it has more illustrations than an illustrated novel, but it has more words than a picture book or than a portfolio. Um, and to make his very realistic paintings, painted illustrations, he has physical models and maquettes. So I reached out to Armand, he and I are friends and I was like, Hey, you and I have this in common because I build little set pieces for Mouse Guard and, I know you have maquettes when you're working on stuff for Timeless. Let's, let's maybe talk about that. And he went, I don't build my maquettes, though, or my models, but I've got model maker friends. And I was like, do you think they'd want to come and join? And he's like, would you be okay with that? And I'm like, absolutely. It turns out both of them have done a trillion things in the movie industry, including both having lots of credits at ILM and Lucasfilm um so it's going to be Armand and these uh one of them's more of a, a soft-edged kind of creature designer, one of them's more of a architectural spaceship uh model maker and uh the three the four of us are going to talk about the relationship between physical 3D objects and 2D flat illustrations and the union between the two and how they each can inform each other
1: i can also uh throw out um Last year you did video, it was on uh, the introduction to world building and also how to uh, draw like yourself. I believe those were the two titles.
2: That wasn't part of online con. That was just uh, a <laughs>
1: random, oh. that was just random like Twitch.
2: Um, I don't feel like drawing today. I'm going to, I'm going to run the, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to run a lecture that I've done before, but I did. Yeah, I did those last year. Yeah. And they're oh. up on uh, my YouTube channel, I believe also, if, it, if you don't d- want to. To Twitch to find
1: it. Your, uh, your memory isn't as good as you think it is Or at least <laughs> mine isn't
2: I don't think I ran those during online con I don't know
1: the, no, last, year, last year all blends together anyways, right? That's very true But I'll just take the hit on that I'm pretty sure I'm wrong then
2: If, if that's all you're wrong about this month You're <laughs> in good shape
1: Sure, we'll go with that
0: So on our way towards Wrapping up I would like to swing by Mouse Guard one more time and ask you, uh, what's on the horizon? What's uh, coming down the line for Mouse Guard? Is there anything that you're excited about that you'd like to talk about? And
2: Yeah, so um, like I said, I'm working on the next book, which is called The Weasel War of 1149. Um, because of the publishing, the way publishing works, you know, um, I need to get far enough into the series so that by the time issue one is solicited, there's no way that as the issues are coming out, it'll ever catch up to my production schedule. So even though I've been talking about it and showing off in process work to people for a long time, I'm still not far enough into it that we can start to publish or even project a publishing date. Um, I'm trying to be regimented about getting the work done without also putting unnecessary pressure on myself. So there is a little bit of like, it'll come when it comes, just keep working. Let's, let's not put down a a hard date in the, in the, in stone yet. Um, but yeah, I'm working on that. It's a prequel book. Um, it's, it's a big war story. It'll be, uh, eight issues instead of six, but we're going to break that up into two, four issue chunks just to make, uh, Publishing easier on everybody that way also mouse guard fans won't get hit with a, a big price tag or maybe even new readers won't get hit with a big price tag of a, of a big new book. It'll be two smaller ones. Um, so that's kind of the long-term plans. Um, short-term there's just some reprinting stuff. The, the mouse guard role-playing game has been out of print for a little while. We knew we were getting low um, at the end of 2019 and we were like, okay, there's probably going to be a little bit of a gap where we don't have the RPG in print, but we're gonna we're gonna take care of that right at the beginning of beginning of 2020. We're gonna we're gonna make sure we get that back to print. And then when the pandemic happened, that completely changed everybody's finances. It changed how printers were operating. It it changed how shipments were coming in and out of the U.S. And so everything got put on hold. But the reprinting of the RPG box set is Back on track, and we're projecting, I think, August or September for that to be available again. And um, there's going to be this summer, I think we're targeting July, but it hasn't been solicited yet, so I can't promise. Um, is going to be a new Mouse Guard single issue that is going to reprint a couple of the free Comic Book Day stories that people might have missed out on, as well as that new story that I, I mentioned that Meredith uh, Salinger read. Uh, during the last online con. And it was called The Owl-Hen Caregiver.
0: Shane in the chat is suggesting that we ask you about Plotmasters. You mentioned it <laughs> uh, briefly in passing earlier, The Plotmaster Project is a podcast that you do. Is that still happening? He says new episodes are coming out soon?
2: Yeah, new episode. So um, my friend Jesse and I, we used to write and draw comics together in high school. And we were pretty good about archiving all the old stuff. Um, and, you know, some some kids in high school just want to sit down and draw their favorite existing characters. And Jesse and I did some of that. We obviously, you know, we drew some Ninja Turtles and some X-Men and stuff. Um, we were also way more interested with creating our own stuff, which, you know, the term IP or intellectual property, <laughs> we weren't aware of that being a thing in those those days, but we basically created between the two of us about thirty IPs. Uh, some of them were mine, some of them were his, some of them were things we did together where they're jointly owned. And like I said, we've been we've been good over the years about archiving all that stuff. So the Plotmaster Project is a video podcast. Uh, go to theplotmasters.com um, where we dig up the old drawings and we show everybody our old embarrassing artwork. We talk about what the story ideas were, what we were influenced by, if we were blatantly ripping something off or if it came up through some other conversation. And then we each as illustrators now do one new piece of artwork showing what it would look like if we were working on this thing now. And it's not just an art update. It's also sometimes a complete like edit. It's going there's some cool bones to that idea of these characters or this story, but man, it needs to get reworked from the ground up. Um, I'd edit this part out. I'd remove that character. I'd shift the tone. I'd make this genre more genre specific. I'd make it less genre specific. Um, so yeah, we each do our update. Uh, the schedule for that got really out of whack because both of us had personal stuff going on. I had my mom uh, was going through some health stuff before she passed uh, for several years that uh, took up my attention. Jesse had some personal work stuff going on that was taking up his. And so, at this point, without putting too much pressure on it, we we do new episodes when we can. Um, and we did three new episodes all at once for the last online con, and we've got two new episodes for this online con. And actually, the two episodes for this online con will round out what we're gonna call season one. We kind of broke down, all those IPs into four sections, into four seasons. Um, So that's the plan. And I think, uh, you know, we haven't, we haven't talked specifics, but I think we'd both like to maybe run a Kickstarter. Jesse and I would both like to maybe do a Kickstarter. That's like an art of book kind of celebrating everything from season one um, that would have nice scans of the old stuff, scans of the new stuff process um, I think there are a couple instances where we found stuff after an episode had gone out, where we were like, "Oh, this is a cool piece. I, I didn't realize we still had this. This would have been good to put in the episode." If we can, if we can fit some of that stuff into an art book, we'd like to, but nothing concrete on that yet. But that's that's where we are. Um, and yeah, two more episodes to go to round out season one, and and plenty more in the future for when we when Jesse and I both have the 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 time and wherewithal to do more.
0: Very cool um well coming into our, our wrap-up we wanted to make a quick announcement that there will actually not be an episode of our condition next week um, because we want to encourage everybody to go and watch online con um this channel will be hosting your channel um as uh you know a, a part of that um so yeah definitely go check that out can you name uh can you say the dates uh the start and end dates again? sure
2: It's. A- uh, Wednesday, the March 24th through Sunday, March 28th.
0: And that you're going to be making a, a blog post pretty soon with the, that, uh, On the schedule, t- uh, or, or like a schedule of what your events are going to be.
2: Yep. On Tuesday, uh, this coming Tuesday, that blog post will go up. Um, it'll be an echo of a blog post, I think from three weeks ago. So if you just go to my blog and scroll back about three weeks, you'll see an online con post that has the entire guest list and the schedule. Um, but yeah, uh, on Tuesday, just
3: before online con goes live, I'll make sure that I kind of repost that post so that, uh, it's right at the top for everyone.
0: Oh, Moose was just about to ask a question <laughs> and it, <laughs> and it dropped him. Um, while he's coming back on, uh, I appreciate,
2: I appreciate you guys preempting for, for online con. That's very, that's very generous of you guys. Oh, uh, sure.
0: Sure. Right.
2: Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, during during this time slot that that you guys normally would be broadcasting, we're going to be having the guests of Donato Giancola, who's a, a world class master illustrator, you know, mo- modern master who does Lord of the Rings illustrations. He's also a, a illustration teacher, um, and uh, and also Kevin McTurk will be one of the guests during this this time as well, and he is a director of short puppetry films. Um, I totally recommend checking out his work uh, at, I think it's thespiritcabinet.com or spiritcabinet.com. I can't remember the exact URL, but check out Kevin's work. I will yeah. be watching.
1: I was going to say, uh, when I looked at the schedule, I saw that Donato was in our time slot. And I was like, there's no way. I mean, <laughs> we, we want Donato on our show at some point. So we're not going to be like, hey, we, we can we cannot find anybody better for our guest that would be better than Donato on on OnlineCon. So it just makes sense to host, because that's great information. We strongly encourage everybody to watch. Thank you.
0: Well, aside from uh, OnlineCon, if people wanted to find out more about you and what you do, where would you like people to go first?
2: Uh, Probably a good hub is mouseguard.net. Um there's a link to my blog there. There's a link to my social media. I'm, I'm at MouseGuard on Twitter and Instagram. Um I don't think there's a link to my Twitch page, um, which in some ways is where I'm most active because I still stream two days a week. Um yeah, I'm probably more active on Twitch than I am, even though there's social media. But um yeah, any of those, you you can find me. I'm around.
0: Yeah, right on, cool. Uh, Moose did you have any follow-up questions anything
1: no the only thing I had was a uh, is was Don Lee's question asked earlier
0: oh yeah yeah we didn't get to that um, yeah if I guess if uh, we can run it down relatively quickly um, earlier in the chat uh, Don Lee had a question about uh, self-publishing, specifically digital self-publishing. If you don't mind circling back to that real quick, sure. Um, his question specifically was: Does he? Uh, does he? or you, David, have any experience or thoughts on digital self-publishing? And he expanded a little bit that he's been thinking about doing a kids' book, and he has no knowledge about publishing. He thought it might be easier to digitally self-publish, but no in-depth knowledge. And wondering if he did that, would that be a good way to get publishers interested?
2: So I have very little experience doing any kind of digital self-publishing stuff on my own. I mean, I know that my books are available through, you know, Kindle and comiXology and things like that. Um, children's books, I mean, maybe it's dated thinking. I tend to think of children's books as being, needing to be physical objects um, that a child can hold. And that the, you know, the p- turn of the page is is an attention holder, A, 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 a climactic event a, a way to keep anticipation going so i have no idea what the digital children's book market is um but i know that it is possible as an individual to get your work on uh on something like a kindle or to make uh pdfs available that are distributed somewhere other than sending them like right to your website you know like when i'm at a convention and people go they don't know that i'm published and they ask like, if I don't buy all these books, how do I get them? And I say, you can order them through your local comic shop or you can get them on Amazon. And they suddenly go like, oh, you're on Amazon. Like this is like a a legitimacy thing. You know, if, if I had said, oh, you have to go to my website, you can order them from my website. If you go to mouseguard.net, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly I seem like I'm small potatoes. I don't seem like I'm a real published person to them. Um if you can get your book either through like an Amazon Kindle or um, I don't know what other book hubs there are for PDFs that would give that legitimacy. I know like through comics, there are a couple, including comiXology. Um, but I do know that with Kindle, it is possible to do it. To, to make that connection and, and get something on uh, on that site as, you know, by yourself without having a publisher. Um, a lot of that always, you know, whenever you self publish anything, whether it's physical or digital, it also means that the push to get people to go buy it is on you. You're the one who still has to do the advertising. You have to do the marketing push. You're the one who has to get the word out there. Um, so just because it's up on Amazon doesn't mean it's going to sell,
3: um, digital or physical, you're going to have to draw people to it, push people to it and, and bang that drum.
0: Fair enough. Right on. Um, last question. Our trademark final. Uh, besides work and personal projects, David, what's one thing that's happening in the world right now that you're excited about?
2: Vaccines. Vaccines. That, Science. That. <laughs> yeah. Science. And while we have argued. Some people have argued about the legitimacy of science with something as simple as a mask. I feel like, and maybe it's just that I've closed off, I, I've, I've formed my own bubble or closed off some, some chattery voices in my life, uh, which, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, I feel like I'm hearing less pushback about vaccines than I am about masks. Um in some ways no. I know that there are still the, you know, oh it's a hoax, it's a 5G, it's a, I'll never take it. But I also know that a lot of people who pushed back about wearing masks are announcing that they've gotten their first shot. And I feel like that's that's progress with those people, but even just in general. The fact that we were able to get those done and that the first one was done without actually any government assistance. Um, and that we're breaking new ground when it comes to the way that those MRNA vaccines are working. It's, it's a completely different biological technology in how to combat stuff. And I think that that's going to be like, not only did we just streamline the pipeline for medical advancement, whether it's with COVID or anything, did we just figure out a better way to, to research, uh, vaccines and medicines Um, we also just came up with a new technology for how to combat them that I have a feeling is going to have ripple effects when it comes to other, um, other diseases, other things that we're trying to combat, like, like, uh, cancers, um, that even if it's not directly applicable, this is, this is the stepping stone to that next thing. That's just going to get us that much further when it comes to medical science. So people are finally starting to take down their, 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 Political shell when it comes to science becoming a, p- a politicized thing. Um, and it just means that we're going to be that much closer to being able to see each other in person again. And that really, like the, the frontier forward is that much more optimistic because we can start tackling other things.
0: Well, and My, defending uh... in the future as well, because that's, you know, the, if, if we learn nothing. <laughs> from 2020 it's that this shit happens <laughs> like that too
1: <laughs> my day job is actually uh, cancer research so um i can confirm that there are people looking into using technologies that was developed as part of the push for the vaccine that uh they are hoping can be applicable to cancer research or cancer treatment rather
2: yeah that's wonderful that's wonderful i mean i think the 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 change in how we thought about uh And it happened with, I feel like uh, HIV was kind of the first push where this became a thing where instead of curing it, managing it became the goal Um, and became a a realistic goal. Managing didn't mean like palliative care. It meant, no, you get to still live your normal life for a normal lifespan. Instead of making this go away, we're just going to make it so that it doesn't impact your life. And working on medicines that could do that as opposed to making it go away completely changed. I think how we even researched, Uh, like I, I do feel like that changed how cancer was treated instead of looking for some kind of magic bullet. It was how do we just make it so that people can live with cancer that much longer without, you know, serious repercussions. So yeah, all this stuff just means that the next, the next generation of medicines for whichever ailment become, Uh, are are coming in from all these different angles instead of just this
3: lateral cure-it-kill-it.
0: Science rules, man. Yeah! David, thank you so, so much. This has been a great talk. Uh, We didn't get to all of our questions, but that just means we have to drag you back in here. Anytime. Just just say yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) All right, cool, man. Well, thank you so much, dude. I'm going to wave goodbye and
3: hit end on the record.